So let's go ahead and get started, talk a little bit about contemporary management of patients with severe traumatic brain injury, something that many of you have heard me talk about ad nauseum and many of you are probably sick of, but I appreciate you showing up anyway. Um, I have no relevant financial disclosures, but as again, you all know, technology hates me. And so uh, when something goes wrong with this PowerPoint, which it most certainly will or with the technology, I apologize in advance. So. Um, these are things I'm not going to talk about. Also super interesting, and I could talk about all of these things ad nauseum as well. The uh, issues around mild TBI, repetitive sports injury, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, pediatric TBI, geriatric TBI, biomarkers, closed-up monitoring, all super interesting. But what I really want to focus on today is a really practical, hands-on approach to how we, best, how we take care of the patient with severe traumatic brain injury today in our trauma center and what, what we're going to do tomorrow. So I have to start with a little bit of epidemiology. Um, those of you uh, who, who live in this world are well aware that traumatic brain injury is the leading cause of death following injury. Um, hemorrhage is number two, and hemorrhage is the leading cause of potentially preventable death, but traumatic brain injury is the leading cause of death. It's responsible for about a third of all traumatic-related deaths. This is just the numbers. This is back in 2013, but 290,000 hospital admissions, 56,000 deaths, 80,000 permanently disabled individuals. Again, a third of all injury-related deaths in the U.S. involve a TBI. Huge cost, about 400 billion annually in the United States uh, is the uh, economic cost of, of traumatic brain injury. And what's just put in a little bit of perspective, um, because for people who don't live in this world, they don't appreciate that of all injuries, traumatic brain injury is the most likely to result in death from permanent disability. And what's really interesting is the annual incidence of acquired brain injury is 30 times more common than breast cancer and 400 times more common than HIV AIDS. TBI occurs at a rate uh, greater than all known causes of multiple sclerosis, HIV, AIDS, breast cancer per year combined. So hugely problematic issue for just by its, by its pure prevalence. What's also really interesting is for people who survive their traumatic brain injury, and this is something that I've started to kind of dive into a little bit in the last couple of years, is this issue of patients who, ex who survive their TBI are at an increased risk of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, increased risk of suicide, increased risk of substance abuse, they're at increased risk of additional injury, including an additional traumatic brain injury. And there are some really interesting, really fascinating studies looking at criminality and the association of criminality and traumatic brain injury with estimates of 60 to 80% of people in prison who have a history of a traumatic brain injury. So really problematic from a public health perspective, even for those who aren't, who do survive their injury and go kind of go back to regular life, so to speak. The good news is mortality is decreasing, and that's really good news. This only goes up back, back to 2010, obviously, but the overall incidence is increasing for a variety of reasons. Number one, um, probably just pure recognition, and that's a good thing, right? The whole issue of repetitive sports injury and concussions and that type of thing, so people are seeking medical care. And death is decreasing, and why is that? Well, this is something that gets kind of beat into your head when you do an MPH, that this is a graph of uh, motor vehicle fatality and injury rates per 100 million vehicle miles traveled over the years. And you can see a very sharp de decline in the in deaths and severe injuries following motor vehicle crashes. Why is this? Well, the greatest public health stories, health success story since the polio vaccine, I may have to change this till the, to the, since the uh, COVID vaccine, but you know what I mean? Um, and it, this is seatbelts. Right, this is a incremental increase in the use of utilization of seatbelts, uh, including with respect to uh, mandatory seatbelt laws. And so unequivocally, people still get injured in motor vehicle crashes, right? We see them every day, but they don't die. And for those of you, my TBI friends out there, my neurotrauma, my four South folks, right? What did our unit use to contain 10 years ago? All your unit, sorry, I have pronoun problems in San Francisco. Uh, what did your, your unit contain? Um, we used to have people all, the unit was filled with people who had terrible left temporal contusions, right? Because the, 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 you're most likely to get T-boned on the driver's side, right? Because you pull out to traffic when you're driving uh, and you're making a left-hand turn. So you get T-boned on your driver's side. 
terrible left temporal contusions. Well, why have those almost entirely gone away? Well, <clears throat> because of this, and this is old, this is 2001. These are early versions of side impact airbags. But if you look at this video, and some of you have seen this, I just, it's old, but it's still the best one I've found that shows the effect of side impact airbags on uh, specifically on the development of severe left temporal, which we all know are incredibly devastating types of injuries. It's really pretty remarkable. And these are now, these were standard vehicle model year 2013, and they are now in everybody's car. Um, so you can see here that although motor vehicle crashes and fatalities in motor vehicle crashes are decreasing, um, you, what is really concerning is this obvious uh, kind of the blue wave, the, the great blue wave that we're seeing, which is um, people getting older. Um, and getting older is, is people are, the population is clearly aging, and that's a good thing, but we are seeing a lot more traumatic brain injuries from falls rather than from um, motor vehicle crashes. And that's, right, the patient, the patient population is aging and is more active. I remember actually one of my last patients before I left Maryland was a 92-year-old who was riding a motorcycle. Good for you, grandpa, go for it, right? But it does mean that we are seeing a lot more geriatric patients. I'm not gonna focus a lot on geriatrics today, but obviously something that's a huge issue for all types of reasons, but specifically the issue of geriatric traumatic brain injury is a really, really problematic one. Well, we talk about traumatic brain injury, I will tell you now having been in a different institution where the management of these patients largely gets deferred to quote unquote experts. This is a disease that you as trauma care providers, you as intensivists, whether you focus on neurotrauma or focus on neuro neurocritical care or not, you need to understand, especially as trauma care providers, because these patients are showing up in your trauma bay and you are the first line of, pe of people that take care of them unequivocally. The CDC definition of blower jolt to the head or penetrating head injury that disrupts the function of the brain is pretty obvious. It's kind of one of those things I know it when I see it, but it is can be difficult to define. And obviously the definition of a brain injury is hugely confounded by a large number of things when our patients first come in. Intoxication obviously being number one, but shock, right? We all recognize that patients with shock will have significant, have significant cognitive dysfunction. When we talk about management of the patient with brain injury, the really key concept that I, we talk about is this issue of primary versus secondary insults. The primary injury is what occurs at the time of impact. And there are two types of, of injuries that we talk about, impact loading and impulsive loading injuries. And this is at the time that the head hits the windshield, the baseball bat hits the head, or the acceleration deceleration injury of imp impulsive loading injuries. Those, that's the primary injury and what's done is done, right? In 2021, neurons can't be fixed. And so what the neurons that are broken are the neurons that are broken. Um, and we all recognize that. And your impact loading injuries are going to be things like your epidurals, your subdurals, your contusions, your impulsive loading injuries are going to be those acceleration, deceleration injuries, like your diffuse axonal injuries, the pediatric equivalent being obviously shaken baby syndrome. But what we then focus all of our time and energy, whether we're at the bedside in the TRU, we're up in the ICU, it's really about minimizing and attenuating these secondary insults that occur in the area around the primary injury and across the entire brain. And these are things like ischemia, swelling and edema, inflammation and cellular dysfunction. And those, the principles of management of a patient with severe traumatic brain injury is really about minimizing the risks of the secondary injury. Because again, you can't fix the primary injury. The neurons that are broken are the neurons that are broken. All you can do is minimize the effects of that that happen subsequently. And the two most important secondary insults that we talk about are obviously hypoxia and hypotension. These are very old studies, but these are kind of classics um, that look at basically single episodes of uh, hypoxia or hypotension or both, not only associated with increased risk of mortality, but obviously a markedly increased risk of morbidity and, and number, uh, namely disability following the brain injury as well. And that's been replicated over and over again. So if you remember nothing else from what I said, right, preventing hypoxia and preventing hypotension are really the mainstays of our therapy of minimizing those secondary insults. 
And I want to just point out just because again, because the issue of geriatrics and geriatric traumatic brain injury comes up so frequently, what is the hypotension, right? What's the number that we all use less than 90, right? Well, if you look at here, and I literally pulled this off the internet. So this is just like a normative chart of what blood pressure should be at different ages. A blood pressure of 90 is way too low for your, even for your normal 60 year old who doesn't have a history of hypertension. So I, I want you to think a little bit more carefully about kind of this one size fits all mentality that we tend to have used for years, um, specifically as it relates to geriatrics. And I think we're getting a little bit smarter about that. And so the, the last iteration of the Brain Trauma Foundation did in fact adjust their blood pressure parameters to basically you wanna maintain a blood pressure greater than 110 for a patient who you have suspicion of, of severe traumatic brain injury rather than the previous um, uh, cutoff of 90, which we recognize is way too low for, for older patients. Again, same thing is true on the other, age, other, on the other side of the age spectrum, right? Pediatrics, the blood pressure cutoffs that we use for pediatrics, 90 is gonna be way too high for a kid, right? We all recognize that. So I think we wanna be a little bit more specific, a little bit more individualized. But we said hypoxia is bad. Well, so is hyperoxia. And this is a concept I'll come back to at the end. This is actually some of Megan, Brenner, Megan, Brenner's, Megan Brenner's data that she published when she was actually a research fellow years ago now that looked at basically the effect of hyperoxia on outcome. And we found out in this and then on the right-hand side is a pre-hospital study that actually hyperoxia is, is almost as bad for you as hypoxia. And what's interesting is so is hypertension. Right, obviously you can't really read these, but this basically is a series of studies that looked at patients who were hypertensive in the setting of severe traumatic brain injury and they did poorly too. So this concept of normoxia and normotension is the concept I'll come back to and you guys will hear a little bit more at the end. I also wanna, this is kind of stupid, um, but this concept of like, how do you actually die from a brain injury? Um, it's actually a lot, a lot of people understand this intuitively. So I just want to go through this and it may be very intuitive to you guys. And I apologize if this is too simplistic, but it's something that I actually get asked. I, people, there's a lot of misconceptions. So the Monroe Kelly doctrine, which everybody wants to forget, like if you went to medical school, you're like, you remember, like it was like eight seconds of one lecture you had in your second year that you never went back to again. But it's basically says, tells you that the Monroe Kelly doctrine is your skull is rigid and fixed. It only has so much room. There's only so much stuff that can live in your rigid fixed skull, um, brain tissue, blood, and CSF. And if the volume of any one of those three increase, the volume of one of those, the other, the other two has to decrease or else increase intracranial pressure. And there's only so much room in your rigid fixed skull. That's basically the, Mon the Monroe Kelly doctrine. So what happens in the setting of patients who actually progress to death by neurologic criteria? They have neuronal injury, they have neuronal swelling, it, that causes increased intracranial pressure, which causes decreased intracranial blood flow, which causes increased neuronal injury, which causes increased neuronal swelling, which, et cetera, et cetera. And ultimately you reach a situation where your intracranial pressure is greater than your mean arterial pressure, which is incompatible with life. So in the absence of either exsanguination from your brain, which you can do certainly in penetrating trauma, it's basically all about this concept of this. I don't know if you guys can see that, but that's super annoying. Sorry. <laughs> My message, oh, sorry, this just popped up on my messy desktop. Um, so basically, the reason I bring this up is that when people talk about, oh, they died from their brain injury because they were, at, at a, the issue being that this is all about elevated intracranial pressure and the secondary insult that occurs around the primary injury is really what happens. So who should you be super worried about when you either hear the report from the field or they first get to the TRU, they first get to your trauma bay, who should you be really worried is at risk of dying from their brain injury imminently? Well, these are gonna be your patients who are gonna have dilated non-reactive pupils, a motor GCS of one or two, a decrease in GCS of more than two points. So those patients are having a rapid decline in their GCS. And then those patients with bradycardia and hypertension. 
and this is something also kind of a misconception, um, but why do patients get that Cushing reflex, that bradycardia and hypertension? It's actually a perfectly normal physiologic response to elevated intracranial pressure. And the brain is trying to maintain cerebral perfusion by increasing systemic blood pressure. The bradycardia is then reflexive to the hypertension. So your treatment of choice is never gonna be atropine. I'm sorry, TRU nurses, but you know this is true. Um, you know I will, I will leap across the TRU and grab it out of your hands. The treatment for spinal cord injury and bradycardia is, is atropine, but you always wanna lower the intracranial pressure. If you actually give a patient who's bradycardic and hypertensive from a Cushing reflex, atropine, they actually will get worse. Um, and so, the, so it's, it's responsive, it's reflexive to the elevated intracranial pressure. The treatment for these patients who are demonstrating these signs and symptoms is the kitchen sink, right? Hyperosmolar therapy, hyperventilation, get your burr holes, get your surgical decompression, do whatever you can do to save the patient's life. Because if you don't, they are likely to herniate and die. Well, similarly, when somebody comes in, rolls in, who needs a neurosurgeon? Meaning who is at high risk of having a unilateral mass lesion that requires evacuation? And these are going to be patients where, that are demonstrating oftentimes lateralizing signs, meaning they're kind of doing the, the, high, the, uh, the GCS Heisman. Um, they have unilateral pupillary abnormalities, or they were talking in the field and now they're unresponsive, right? The rapid decline in GCS patients. These are patients who are very likely to have a unilateral mass lesion that would require evacuation. And you may want to think about prioritizing how you take care of these patients with respect to what's going, what may be going on in their head. And these are some really, really general parameters. There's lots of caveats to this and the details of this are not important. And all of these are dependent on a variety of other things, what the patient's pupillary exam is, how old they are, what their motor score is, et cetera, et cetera. But as a general rule, a subdural hematoma of greater than one centimeter or a shift greater than five millimeters should probably be evacuated. An epidural hematoma that's greater than 30 centimeters cubed and an intraparenchymal contusion that's greater than 50 centimeters cubed. Now, again, these are very, very general parameters. And certainly there are caveats around this when you might operate on something that's smaller and you might choose not to operate on something that's larger. So just as a general rule, when you see these, these images, you know who, again, you need to call your neurosurgeon for relatively urgently. And as importantly, and this is hugely important, um, is particularly in rural areas, uh, certainly in Maryland, we had this issue where everybody who has a speck of blood in their brain gets transferred to the shock trauma center, right? I mean, we, we see this all the time. And Bilal Joseph, who's one of our former fellows from Maryland, um, did this very nice study where he's currently in the process of validating in a large multi-center uh, observational study where he looked at what he called big brain injury guideline um, one, two, and three categories. And basically all of the patients in that big one category, not a single one of them had progression of their lesions or required an intervention. And so basically what he's saying, particularly he's out in Arizona. So you know they have places that are four hours, five hours, six hours away. They're sending these patients to them to get stared at for five hours and then go home, right? We have the same thing in Maryland, obviously. You guys, you guys have the same thing in Maryland. Um, but uh, these basically says that yes, these patients who have trivial brain injuries and are, are neurologically intact and not anticoagulated can absolutely be observed at their local community hospital, do not require neurosurgical consultation and do not even require necessarily additional imaging. So again, working on, on validating this in larger trials. Well, we talked about some of the kind of the acute stuff, right? Prevent hypoxia, prevent hypotension, know when your patient's about to herniate, uh, know when your patient's gonna need an operation. Well, what do we do then with the vast majority of patients that don't need an operation and just have a severe traumatic brain injury and now we're gonna take care of them up in our ICU? Well, there's kind of the age old question, should we put an ICP monitor in their head? 
Well, <clears throat> why is ICP monitoring, monitoring intracranial pressure important, right? If a patient's progressing to brain death, you usually don't need the ICP to tell you that, right? That's pretty obvious based on all the things we just talked about. But why do we want to monitor patients who have a severe traumatic brain injury? Well, it certainly is the most rapid and consistent way of determining the development of cerebral edema. It also gives us advanced warning of impending worsening of, uh, from hematoma or contusion expansion, cerebral venous outflow compromise, loss of autoregulation, hyperemia, abnormalities to CSF, and postoperative complications. Waiting for a patient to wake up and just follow them clinically may delay therapy. Also, we know that for patients who have very tenuous um, uh, neurologic status and are on, for example, very high dose sedatives in order to, monitor, in order to maintain uh, their intracranial pressure, uh, turning the propofol off to check their neurologic exam may be deleterious. We know that CT scan, it's costly. Uh, again, may delay therapy. <clears throat> um, if we can identify elevated intracranial pressure via monitoring, it may allow us to intervene in a more timely fashion. And probably as important as anything else, it's really the way that we um, measure cerebral perfusion pressure, which probably is actually more important than intracranial pressure. And we need the ICP to know what the CPP is. It also allows for calculation of the pressure reactivity, which is a kind of, as we think about um, making our, our, our therapies for brain injury a little bit more um, specific to a, to a given patient, pressure reactivity is a really important part of doing that concept I won't really go much more into. And there's lots of observational data. You can find observational data that supports that, yes, we should be monitoring patients because they all do better. And you can find observational data that says we should absolutely not monitor patients because they all do worse. You can find the data that goes in both directions, but there is as many of you are aware, is a large randomized trial, right? But we don't have many of these in critical care. There is a large randomized trial. This is the best trip trial. This was done outside the United States in Central America that where they randomized patients to ICP, a, a uh, algorithm that um, in which patients had ICP monitors and their, their treatments were guided by the ICP versus no ICP monitoring and treatments were guided by clinical findings and CT findings. And you can see on the right-hand side, there no difference in outcome. Well, what's really interesting about this is the group that wasn't monitored actually had more interventions. So it's not that they were ignoring the patients. It's not like they were putting them in a corner. They were actually intervening more based on their clinical findings and their CT findings. But the ICP itself was not the be all and end all. There's lots of other issues with this study, again, done outside the United States in, the area, in an area where there's very little pre-hospital care and probably most significantly, there's almost no post-acute services. So you guys have heard me say to patients for years, you know, we'll keep them alive, hopefully, right? But rehab is going to get them well. And then these are patients who large, almost exclusively had no access to rehabilitative services after their brain injury. So the chances that a patient's going to get significantly better, um, kind of, you can debate that back and forth. But the best data that we have available says ICP monitoring in and of itself does not improve outcome. And, that, and that's fine. But it's really about then when we think about it, it's not just about the ICP. And I think that's really the take home message in the Brain Trauma Foundation, even back in the last iteration in 2016, it is about the combination of ICP clinical and brain CT findings that we should be using to make management decisions. <clears throat> um, this is again, the, the 2016 uh, Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines where uh, they basically said, yes, we know that there's a randomized trial, it showed no difference in outcome, but there's other data that says that it does reduce in-hospital and two-week post-injury mortality. So that's how they chose to leave their guidelines uh, with the previous version of recommendations um, kind of left in there as well. I wanna just very, very briefly uh, mention ICP monitoring in geriatric patients. We actually have some data right now that is in some version of, of press, hopefully, Mira, I think you're on there somewhere. Um, anyway, that basically says, and the, the take-home message from this and the, um, is that ICP monitoring in geriatric patients um, really is certainly not, does not seem to improve outcome. Uh, and also, 
if you think about it, in geriatric patients are largely not at risk of elevated intracranial pressure. That's not why patients do poorly in the setting who are geriatric, because they often will have significant cerebral atrophy. So the whole concept of the Monroe Kelly doctrine, they have a lot more room in their rigid fixed skull. So speaking of the Monroe Kelly doctrine, come back here for a brief moment. <clears throat> Remember we talked about there are three things that live in your rigid fixed skull, brain tissue, blood, and CSF. If the volume of one of those three increases, we have to increase the volume of one of the other two or else patients will develop elevated intracranial pressure, which is what we're trying to avoid. So how do we do that? It's actually pretty simple. Um, if they have blood in their head, we should evacuate it. Got that. If their brain is swollen, we need to uh, decrease the volume of their brain compartment. What's, what are our options, right? Mannitol or hypertonic saline, Doritos or cupcakes, take your pick, right? Sugar or salt, I'm a salty girl, so I don't like sweets as you, many of you know, so I pick Doritos every time, but nothing wrong with cupcakes. Everybody loves a cupcake. Um, really, people talk about like, which is better and I don't get it, like who cares? It's, they, can be they can be used in a complimentary fashion and they should be used in a complimentary fashion. And we all know the nurses are so good at this, right? They know the patient likes their sodium of 152 or they like the mannitol, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. The brain responds differently to different things. It, they both work. Um, the reason why we might choose one over the other, there are a couple of reasons. Number, you know, mannitol has an immediate plasma expanding effect, but, and then a brain sh shrinkage effect by the extraction of water because it's a hyperosmolar agent. But we know that it also can make patients hypovolemic because it's a diuretic. So in the setting of acute trauma, for example, I prefer hypertonic saline because it's a volume expander as opposed to a, uh, something that might uh, allow the patient to become hypovolemic and lower their blood pressure. In a patient with an isolated brain injury, that may be okay to allow them to have, be, have a little bit of, uh, not to be hypovolemic necessarily, but they don't necessarily need volume. There's also a very well-recognized rebound phenomenon with mannitol, and so it's pr probably best used as kind of single dose as an acute temporizing measure um, because, because repeated doses or continuous infusions can lead to kind of this paradoxical opening of the blood-brain barrier and subsequent rebound effect. Similar to, to mannitol, hypertonic saline reduces I3, ICP through an immediate hemodynamic effect and this delayed osmotic effect. Um, where, but it's a volume expander because it's not a diuretic. You don't pee it back out again. And on the left-hand side here is some MRIs of some rats or mice or something. Um, and the white is going to be uh, water content. And the top one is before and after treatment with 7.5% saline. The middle one is before and after, after treatment with normal saline. And the bottom one is a control. And you can see just the overall water content of the brain is markedly less after you give the rat patient um, uh, a dose of hypertonic saline. So that's how that works. But what about CSF? That's pretty straightforward, uh, right? You drain it, um, external ventricular drainage, interventricular catheters, some uh, discussion that you can use lumbar drainage in some of these patients. Don't say, don't tell Dr. Arabi I said so. Um, he'll have a stroke, but obviously that is largely in resource poor environments where external ventricular drainage through an interventricular catheter is not possible. You have to be very careful um, with that depending on the patient's mass lesion. So I don't, we don't recommend doing that, but um, it's, it is an option, of, especially for any of you that are in a resource poor environment. Um, the blood compartment is by far for us neurointensive geeks among the who are on the call um, is by far the most interesting. Um, it's the one that we kind of spend all of our time thinking about and ruminating about and think we're really smart uh, when we talk about. But it's really about cerebral blood flow, cerebral blood flow reduction, and I, I kind of break it up into appropriate cerebral blood flow reduction and what I will call inappropriate in air quotes cerebral blood flow reduction. Right, so you have hyperventilation, you have your sedation, you have analgesia, head position, decompressive laparotomy, you haven't done that in a while, uh, barbiturates, neuromuscular blockade, therapeutic hypothermia, permissive hypertension, lots of ways to decrease the blood compartment. 
I will call this, i.e. sedation, and this is of course Maureen McCunn's slide, who else would possibly create a slide that looks like that besides Maureen McCunn? Um, I will, this is appropriate to a blood flow reduction, right? What do you do when you sedate a patient? You give them adequate sedation that will decrease their cerebral metabolic rate, which will decrease their cerebral blood flow, which will decrease their intracranial pressure, right? That's what we call appropriate cerebral blood flow reduction, barbiturates, right? Unfortunately, they haven't have horrible systemic side effects, but barbiturates do the same thing. I will call this, i.e. hyperventilation, inappropriate, again, in air quotes, um, cerebral blood flow reduction, right? Because there's a reflexive vasoconstriction that occurs as the result of uh, cerebral spinal fluid alkalosis that isn't necessarily because of a reduction. It's, it doesn't, it's not that the cells need less blood flow, excuse the expression, it's that they're just gonna get less blood flow. And so what happens? Well, we know that that can be associated with cerebral ischemia if used too liberally, prophylactically. It really should be used, hyperventilation It's very effective, but it really should be used as a temporizing measure. And this is just a, a nice study that I like. Um, if you look on the, at the graph there, the dark circles are gonna be patients and the light circles there are gonna be uh, normal uh, volunteers. And what you do is you take a bunch of people, flow velocity on the y-axis there is gonna be our surrogate for cerebral blood flow. You take a bunch of patients and, and, normal, and normal volunteers and you hyperventilate them. You can see it drops their, their, their cerebral blood flow but you see that the patients, their cerebral blood flow stays down whereby your normal patients with the normal brains, their cerebral blood flow starts to return to normal when you stop hyperventilating them. Similarly, when you look here, and I can't see this now because of this, um, when you look here, these are all patients now, and up here is gonna be cerebral perfusion pressure. Flow velocity, again, is gonna be the dark circles, which is gonna be our surrogate for cerebral blood flow. And then this is gonna be intracranial pressure. You take a bunch of patients who hyperventilate them, drops their intracranial pressure, but you can see even when their cerebral blood flow stays low, their intracranial pressure starts to go back up a little bit. So you're gonna kind of get this rebound effect even in the setting of, uh, of, of hyperventilation in particularly in patients with injured brains. Well, let's talk for a minute or two about temperature management because this is something that I get asked about a lot. I'm sure, I think I saw Gunjan on there. I'm sure he gets asked about it a lot. We all talk about it a lot. It seems like it's a really good idea, right? Um, brain temperature is typically a degree to a degree and a half higher than body temperature. We know that fever causes an increase in cerebral metabolic rate, CO2 production, an increase in cerebral metabolic rate requires an increase in cerebral blood flow, which can elevate ICP. So clearly fever is bad. We all recognize that. But it seems like it'd be a really good idea to drop their temperature, that that should help make their brain better, right? And the reasons for that, you can see on the left-hand side here, kind of some of the reasons why therapeutic hypothermia in the setting of brain injury is a good idea. Right, reduction cerebral metabolic rate, blocks deleterious chemical cascades, decrease excessive post-traumatic release of excitatory neurotransmitters, attenuates the opening of the blood-brain barrier, and may prevent reperfusion injury and cellular damage. But we know it's associated with significant systemic complications. Um, there are definitely and unequivocally rewarming-related complications. And then probably, I think, in my opinion, um, maybe not the most significant, but one of the ones that's really concerning is these rewarming-related abnormalities in the supervascular circulation, um, that it can be very prominent and very problematic. And there were a number of randomized controlled trials that were done early on in like the 90s and the early 2000s that um, basically either used, uh, used therapeutic hypothermia. Once a patient developed elevated intracranial pressure, we then applied therapeutic hyperthermia or therapeutic hypothermia, excuse me, or where we said, we're gonna do it as a neuroprotectant and we're just gonna make the patient cold irrespective of what's going on with their ICP for X number of days. And these were kind of these two early studies um, and actually demonstrated some benefit, uh, in, in particularly in the first category. However, there have been a number of trials, I think five now, if I'm not mistaken, of multi-center large trials, including one in pediatrics. This was the fourth of five 
This is a study, this was the Eurotherm trial. Uh, this is a randomized controlled trial of patients where they used it as a tiered, as part of their stage three tiered therapies in patients who had elevated intracranial pressure. And you can see that the favorable outcome, meaning a good score on the Glasgow outcome scale extended version, occurred in 26% of patients in the hypothermia group. I apologize for the colors there. And only 37, and I'm sorry, and 37% of patients in the control group, meaning it was associated with worse neurologic outcomes. Uh, subsequent to that just um, uh, uh, was the polar trial, which was um, for prophylactic hypothermia. And you can see again here, based on this graph on the right-hand side here, although they were successful in keeping the, the temperature down, they were successful at lowering intracranial pressure. It was not associated with improvements in outcome. And so kind of the final nail on the therapeutic hypothermia coffin kind of occurred with this study. That being said, it doesn't mean and I think that one of the things that, um, and these are some of the other trials that were done uh, around that. Um, so really bottom line, no improvement or worse outcomes. And that was with, with both in, with systemic effects as well as neurologic outcome. But I think one of the key things about all of these therapies is that these are population-based studies, right? So these are not, in, these are not, you can think about an individual patient in whom may benefit, um, but as a general rule, does therapeutic hypothermia improve outcome following traumatic brain injury? The answer is, um, is no. However, <clears throat> I think there is a lesson to be learned here, and this is um, the obviously the uh, post-cardiac arrest therapeutic hypothermia Nielsen study, which is now several years old. Um, uh, and it basically, everybody remembers those two large studies that basically said out of hospital cardiac arrest, cool them to 32 to 34 degrees, better neurologic outcomes, great, became standard of care unequivocally, absolutely. Well, then this study was done in 2013. It said, wait, not so fast. They randomized patients to a 36 degrees versus 33 degrees and found that there was no difference. But the really key thing here was that they kept them normothermic in this study. They didn't allow them to have fever. And so that really is probably the take home message here. Oops, is, sorry, these are out of order. Uh, the take home message here is it's about preventing fever and normothermia. This study, however, um, was uh, published in the New England Journal. I can't see the date on here. Uh, just last year. Um, and this was in patients who, uh, who had cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythms, as opposed to the original studies that were done in patients who had out-of-hospital V-fib arrests. And interestingly, um, there was no difference in outcome, uh, uh, sorry, no difference in mortality. However, among the patients who had been resuscitated, um, who received moderate hypothermia at 33 degrees, they actually did have improved neurologic outcome. So take home message here is clearly hyperthermia is bad. Fever is clearly bad. Normothermia is good. And there may be some benefit to hypothermia. I think it's just a matter of who you apply it in. This is post-cardiac arrest, obviously, but I think that some of those messages are translatable to traumatic brain injury as well. <clears throat> and also the one thing I will mention um, uh, is that obviously for those of us who have tried to keep a patient at 36 degrees, particularly a young, a young kid, they shiver like crazy and it's much easier easier in quotes to keep them at 36 degrees, uh, 33 degrees, excuse me. What about decompressive craniectomy? <clears throat> well, we know that if you look at it decreases intracranial pressure, right? We vi violate the Monroe Kelly doctrine, right? Rigid fixed skull, all the stuff that lives in there, right? Volume is going up, pressure is going up. We just violate the doctrine by taking off the skull. We know that it decreases intracranial pressure and improves glucose and oxygen utilization. It increases blood flow and, and decreases cerebral vascular resistance, enhances brain tissue oxygen, and improves cerebral compliance. <clears throat> the randomized controlled trial, the first one that was done back in 2011 now, uh, this was the DECRA trial. This was done outside the United States. Patients who had decompressive craniectomy did worse than patients who were treated with medical therapy alone. 
Now, if you really want to get a group of neurosurgeons <clears throat> um, kind of all hopped up, like walk in the room and be like, Decra, and then like run out. Um, lots of issues with this study. I freely admit that. Um, there were problems with randomization. There were more patients with non-reactive pupils in the decompression group. The way they did their decompression was a little bit atypical. The timing of their decompression was a little bit atypical. But this was the only randomized trial that existed for a period of time. Oh, sorry, this is this is uh, my slide saying why we shouldn't believe DECRA, right? It's like everything else, right? You do a randomized trial, we don't like the results, so we just like bash the methodology. We did it with the NASA's trials too, so. Um, so there are authorities that have claimed that the results should have no influence on clinical practice. Well, subsequent to that, um, this is the rescue ICP trial, which we were all really eagerly awaiting. Um, and this was published uh, in 2016. And basically, what did it say? Uh, you can probably guess without even looking at the slides, right? So if you take a bunch of people who have a severe traumatic brain injury, and they have severe intracranial hypertension and malignant intracranial hypertension, and they're failing medical therapy. And you take a bunch of patients, and in half those patients, you take their skull off and allow them to herniate out their cranial defect rather than die from a, from neurologic criteria, die a death of neuro, from neurologic criteria. Fewer patients die, but of those patients who survive, their neurologic outcomes are poor, or a significant percentage have poor neurologic outcome. I don't think that's a big surprise to anybody. I think we all could have seen that coming, but this is a large randomized trial that basically demonstrates that, that to us. So what do we do in, oh, gotta update the slide in 2021. Um, obviously it's about patient selection, right? If you take somebody who has a devastating neurologic injury and decompress, their, decompress them, they're unlikely to do well. Um, it's about the anatomy, it's about their age, it's about the pattern of secondary insult like we talked about. And really, how are you defining your failure of maximal med medical management? And I also encourage you that a primary decompressive craniectomy done for the purposes of malignant intracranial hypertension is not the same thing as taking a patient down, evacuating their subdural hematoma, and choosing not to replace their bone at that setting. And the analogy I'll use for the non-TBI people is this is the difference between a primary decompressive laparotomy, meaning you call me to the bedside, the bladder pressure is 45, and they're having high pressures on the vent and they're not peeing. And I say, I'm gonna take the patient and do a decompressive laparotomy, as opposed to I do a damage control laparotomy where I choose not to close the patient because I know they're incredibly high risk of developing, of developing intra-abdominal hypertension. That's the primary decompressive craniectomy is equivalent to the primary decompressive laparotomy versus the secondary decompressive craniectomy, which is just leaving the bone off when you operate on them. An important caveat. Um, you know, if you go to the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, which is like the Bible of, of TBI management, they really kind of don't tell you how to take care of the patient. They really spent a lot of time and energy making sure that there was specifically data behind any recommendations that they made. And so uh, it's a group of neurosurgeons and neurointensivists got together, the Seattle in uh, International Severe Traumatic Brain Injury Consensus Conference, super, super um, great acronym, CBIC, um, that basically decided based on expert opinion, a modified Delphi technique, it was about six months of work we did, um, that basically to try to Give, provide some guidance to actually what should I do in a given situation? And we were able to come up with this tiered algorithm, which I think is, is, uh, is a nice way to approach your average patient. And the key thing about this is that some guideline and some tier, tiered algorithmic approach, there's lots of data that says that's associated with improvements in outcome overall. So it doesn't matter so much what the individual therapy is, as long as you are following a guideline-based approach. And at that same time, I also was saying, you also wanna be as individualized for your patients as you possibly can by using parameters such as pressure reactivity, hypertensive challenges, um, age-related uh, norm normative values for your CPP and your ICP. So throw it out there. Well, neurointensivists, it's not just about the ICP, right? We 
neurointensivists love toys. Um, there are lots of different toys that we can use. Um, bottom line is that uh, outcome studies are pretty rare, but I do want to mention one uh, that is seemingly pretty promising. Uh, the BOOST trials, this is brain tissue oxygen monitoring of the Lycox device. Uh, the phase two trial, which was done, which was not looking at neurologic outcome or mortality as its outcome measure because it was a safety study. Um, and it was a, a, met, a method study, but they did demonstrate that there was reduced brain tissue hypoxia, a trend towards lower mortality and a trend towards more favorable outcome when patients were managed with an approach that you see here, oh, sorry, here, which is normal PBRO2, low ICP, you don't need to do anything, normal PBRO2, high ICP, lower their ICP, low PBRO2, meaning their brain is hypoxic, normal ICP, you want to improve their brain tissue oxygen. And then if they are hypoxic and have elevated intracranial pressure, you obviously target both. So this phase two trial is super compelling. Well, there is now boost three going on. I think you guys are enrolling at Maryland, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so hopefully this is actually one of the first, for, I think if you look at the sum total of all the TBI studies that have been done that have failed to demonstrate significant benefit, um, this is one that's, that's really very promising. And so it, we are all very much eagerly looking forward to what the results of this trial are gonna be. Uh, this study is then powered now to actually detect differences in outcome as opposed to the phase three trial, phase two trial that was done previously. But what about other systemic therapies <clears throat> that might be available to us? Well, what's really interesting is um, this concept of, of plasma and brain injury. It's kind of a newer in vogue thing. Um, this is an animal study that, I, that uh, um, demonstrated this uh, from 2015, and it basically demonstrated again in the large animal model of traumatic brain injury that what they found, they were looking at polytrauma models. And they found that early administration of plasma actually was beneficial with respect to neurologic impairment and speed of recovery. And <clears throat> they um, also found a smaller lesion size in FFP treated animals. And there's been a couple of observational studies that have been done in humans that have demonstrated also that, pa that patients now who received plasma um, actually did better with respect to uh, their brain injury. And that was specifically true in, in certain types of brain injury. So kind of an interesting thing. And why might that be? Well, one is obviously we know that when your brain is injured, you, it can make you coagulopathic. So certainly correcting some of that coagulopathy with something like plasma is beneficial. But this is Rosemary Kozar's, these are, are pictures I stole from one of her really elegant uh, series of, of studies that she's done where many of you have probably heard her speak on this, where she talks about this, the shaggy rug of the glycocalyx. Um, and this is the endothelium and the glycocalyx of, of, of vasculature and this concept of maintenance of the glycocalyx and it being associated with markedly decreased uh, inflammation, particularly in the lung and some of her work that she's done. So it's kind of an interesting concept and certainly something that people are um, investigating going forward with respect to, and again, this is not in patients who necessarily have hemorrhagic shock. These are in patients who have brain injury and it might be, help, might be beneficial for the brain. Similarly, there's been a lot of interest recently in transoxamic acid. Why would transoxamic acid be good for your brain, right? We think it's good for patients who have hemorrhagic shock. We know it's good for patients who have hyperfibrinolysis in the setting of hemorrhagic shock. Well, why might it be good for your brain? Well, <clears throat> as an antifibrinolytic, it may limit fibrinolysis in your brain as well. And so limit intracranial hemorrhage progression. It also may inhibit the effect of tissue, of tissue plasminogen activator, which plays a role in cerebral edema. And there's probably something else going on as well. 
And many of you are probably familiar with the results of the CRASH-3 trial. CRASH-1, um, just a, a point of, of kind of historical note, CRASH-1 was actually the, de the study that demonstrated that steroids were bad for brain injury. CRASH-2 was the trial that demonstrated that TXA is good for patients with hemorrhagic shock in the setting of trauma. CRASH-3 was then uh, randomized patients to early administration of TXA who were suspected of having severe, or suspected of having traumatic brain injury. The enrollment criteria, they had to be within three hours of injury. They had to have a GCS of less than 13 or intracranial hemorrhage on CT scan. So these are kind of patients who were suspected of having mild to, I'm sorry, moderate to severe injury. They were not targeting patients with mild injury. No major extracranial bleeding. So these were not patients who had concomitant um, uh, hemorrhage. And they uh, had 175 hospitals in 29 countries. Primary endpoint was head injury related death in the hospital within 28 days. <clears throat> and you can see here that overall there was an effect that favored transexamic acid. However, if you look at the patients who actually had severe injury, i.e. those patients who had a GCS of three to eight or those patients who had non-reactive pupils, there actually wasn't a benefit seen. So it kind of makes me think, who are these people who died of TBI related who died from, a, from their TBIs in this group, that's one thing. But it's kind of interesting that it didn't benefit the patients with severe injury, which leads to kind of one of these philosophical issues about many studies of traumatic brain injury, is that if you take a bunch of patients who have devastating primary neurologic injury, it's unlikely that any significant therapy that we have available to us in 2021 is going to be beneficial. And so it's really a matter of when you do these studies, when you think about these studies, I think it's really a matter of patient selection. Um, subsequent to the CRASH-3 trial was, this is uh, from Susan Rowell and the people at Oregon, uh, in Oregon as well as a multi-center trial where they looked at pre-hospital TXA in the United States, randomized patients to receive pre-hospital TXA in patients again who were suspected of having moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. Their primary outcome was six month neurologic outcome. And they found in fact, with respect to their primary outcome, no difference in those patients who received TXA and those who received placebo. However, the two gram bolus, which was not their primary outcome was associated with an improved 28 day survival. Subsequent to that, there was a study of patients with isolated traumatic brain injury. And this was a study done in, uh, in I believe in the UK, if I'm not mistaken. And this study found that pre-hospital transoxamic acid was associated with increased mortality in patients with isolated severe traumatic brain injury. So I get asked a lot, what do you do with TBI <clears throat> with a TXA uh, currently? Well, where I practice now, my pre-hospital times are median pre-hospital time of eight minutes, which is very different than you practice in an environment where your pre-hospital times are much longer. And so I would suggest that there probably is a role for TXA. I don't think we have to find exactly what that role should be yet. And I think the jury's still out. I don't know what's gonna tip the scale one way or the other because these three studies taken, in, in, um, taken together would perhaps kind of leave you bewildered, which it certainly does to me. Um, but I think it's really about, I, I just don't know what the right answer is right now. And I do get asked about this an awful lot. I also wanna just kind of leave you all with this concept of traumatic brain injury is very much a multi-system disease. And some of you actually, for the older people in the, may actually remember this kid. This was a kid <clears throat> who we took care of. This is many years ago now, as you can see from the very old CRT pump <clears throat> that we took care of, who literally had an isolated severe traumatic brain injury. He probably developed propofol-related infusion syndrome before we recognized what that was. Um, but keep in mind that what you do matters. These therapies that we're applying to the patient are applied systemically, right? Hyperventilation, mannitol, propofol. But also keep in mind that the, the, the disease, the injured brain 
affects your other organs tremendously. And um, TBI is very much a multi-system disease. As, as those of you who work on Four South, those of you who work over in, in the neuro ICU would know, when your sprain gets sick, it can make the rest of you very sick. The classic disease for this that I think is most recognized is an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, where we rec very well recognize systemic effects. But it occurs in traumatic brain injury as well. And there's lots of data behind this, and I, I, won't, I won't go into. And again, keep in mind, all the things that we're applying are really systemic therapies. So I always say it's about protecting the brain while managing the rest of the patient, but also protecting the rest of the patient while managing the brain. Because we can get ourselves into a situation where by aggressive management of, for example, an isolated ele elevated intracranial pressure, turn up the propofol, which drops the blood pressure. So we turn up the, we give them more crystalloid, which elevates their, it means that their vent settings need to go up, which ultimately decreases cerebrovenous return, which elevates their intracranial pressure. So we go up on the propofol, so we give them more fluid, which makes their lungs wet. So we need more ventilatory support. I mean, you can imagine how you get yourself into this kind of vicious cycle of taking care of these patients. And so it's really about, um, I think, about this very key concept of kind of that ba oh, balance. I used to have more stuff on that slide anyway, sorry. And it's really about this concept of the middle of the road approach, I think, which is that you don't want to do anything too much in any one direction. And it's really about normoxia, normotension, normocarbia, normothermia. Um, it's, you know, there's sometimes less is more. Um, and I think that you want to maintain these patients in the, in the status that you uh, keep them as healthy as possible, keep the rest of their body as healthy as possible to support their brain and then get them out, as I said before, because rehab is really what's going to get them well. So I will leave you with that. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you guys so much. Um, I miss you all. I really, really do. Um, and so I very much hope that uh, we're all together soon, or I get to see you guys at least, and that you're all staying very safe and very healthy and that things are good there. And I do miss you. Thank you for the invitation.